0: Welcome to Matthew Felix, the radio episodes, words and images. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the novel, A Voice Beyond Reason and the travel story collection With Open Arms, short stories of misadventures in Morocco. In February, 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix on air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The radio episodes, words and images podcast feature segments from that radio show in which I converse with writers, photographers, filmmakers, and more. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current incarnation, Matthew Felix On Air, available here as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening and talk soon. Writer, traveler, and award-winning photographer Tanya Romanov was born in Serbia and spent her early years in a refugee camp in Trieste, Italy before eventually emigrating to the United States. Tanya attended San Francisco Public Schools, UC Berkeley, and the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And she served as CEO of three IT companies. Tanya's stories have won numerous awards and been featured in the Best Travel Writing, Volumes 10 and 11. She is a founder of the Healdsburg Literary Guild in California and the educational nonprofit Public School Success Team, which mobilizes community volunteers to reduce public high school dropout rates. Tanya has climbed Mount Whitney and Mount Kenya, circumnavigated circumnavigated Annapurna, I put an extra N in there, trekked through Bhutan and Kashmir, and sailed along remote rivers in Burma or Myanmar. Her focus right now, however, is her new book, Mother Tongue, the true saga of three lives of Balkan women, one of whom happens to be Tanya herself. Welcome, Tanya.
1: Thank you, Matthew.
0: All right. I'm very excited to have you here, and I'm lucky to have you here because you have been all over the place, but most recently you were uh, doing, you, you did your first book tour for Mother Tongue, and you did that in Colorado, and I think that was just last week?
1: That was just last week. And how did that go? It went really well, and quite frankly, the best part was that I got to read at my 13-year-old granddaughter's middle school. Oh, you did? Uh, I
0: didn't know that. I knew you were doing the bookstores. I did. I didn't did. know about... Okay so how many kids were there? There
1: were about 45 kids okay. in the room and catching the attention of a 13-year-old boy is challenging. Oh yes. And but you, once you catch their eye I was surprised they really do pay attention.
0: So what I'm curious which section you read then to to cuz it would have to be one to really get their attention. Right. So what part did you I read? I read
1: several ones but the ones I finally read for my grandkids was the one about the Greg. The great It was about being mortified about the way my mother spoke English. Oh yeah. Cuz I'm always worried about embarrassing the kids.
0: Yes. Yeah. You you're worried about embarrassing the kids? Of course. Oh my god. All right. <laughs> We should all be so lucky to have grandmothers as cool as Tanya. I mean, seriously. That's what
1: they said. Th- that's cool. what they said?
0: <laughs> oh, all right. Then I think you're fine. Clearly, you have nothing to worry about. Uh, so 45 kids. All right. So that's great. Um, and you just touched on one of the main themes that we're going to get to, which, of course, is language. That's part of the title. And we're going to get to that in a second. But uh, I'm curious on the book tour, because when I was promoting my first book, um, my, my novel, uh, Voice Beyond, I had to think of it—a voice beyond reason. Uh, it was interesting because the same questions would come up over and over again. And I'm just curious: Were there did you did you experience that as well? Were there particular questions that came up over and over again, or not really? Not really. Not really. It's surprising how
1: much they changed. I, I had people in um, the tattered cover bookstore. I read something that in the beginning sort of set up a mystery about my mother's name. Uh-huh. And they insisted I read the part in the book that clarifies the mystery. Uh, so I okay. was very surprised. Yeah. And then um, the other day, questions came up about my role as a business executive, as uh-huh. a woman in business. Uh-huh. I certainly didn't expect that.
0: Well, yeah, because you don't really write about that in no. the book.
1: Well, I skip Do you over you? it. Yeah. yeah. Or
0: you just kind of gloss over it. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember because I read the book. Actually, I've read the book probably two or three months ago now. Right. So, of course, I reviewed my notes that I took at the time. But there are some things that are going to be a little foggy that you might have to clue me in on. Um, although I think I got the important stuff. So, So let's talk about the book itself. So first off, it's dedicated to your mom, Zora. So why is that? I mean, mother tongue. It's dedicated to your mom, obviously, and this is your story, this is her story, and this is your grandmother's story. So why, why dedicate it to your mom?
1: Well, my mother came from Istria, which is a part of now Croatia. She was evicted from there because Mussolini was given that part of the world at the end of World War I. She then lived in what used to be Yugoslavia for, until she became an adult and got married. And she promised her mother when they were evicted from Istria by the Italians, that she would maintain her mother's language mm-hmm. and that she would maintain it with her children. Yep. And what she didn't know was that she was going to marry a Russian mm-hmm. who absolutely was committed to maintaining the Russian language with his children and that they would then be evicted from Yugoslavia, would live in, as you said, Trieste, Italy for four years and then end up in America. So that was a requirement then of multiple languages. And the reason the book is mother tongue and that I had to write it was somewhere not too long ago, I became really aware of the fact that Serbian or Serbo-Croatian, as we thought of it, is not just a language that I spoke because my mother was Serbian, but she was in fact the only person I spoke it with. Right. And it, in the end, it became an obsession to share this unique story.
0: Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about that because that, that was actually my next question was why you wrote the book. And let me preface this from with kind of a different context or, or more context from the perspective from which I'm asking the question, which is, like I said, I read the book and not only did I thoroughly enjoy it, but for me, there were many reasons why it matters. And both as a personal story that you might wanna share with the world uh, but also for some other broader reaching reasons that may or may not have been your intention. So, can you tell us a little bit more about why you wanted to write this story and share this story?
1: Well, one of the primary reasons for me also was the fact that my mother was a refugee, her mother was a refugee, my father was a refugee, I was a refugee. And now we're in the middle of refugee crises, And I could hardly say those words without crying. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it touches me so deeply. Yep. And I wanted to just see if I could paint this picture in an honest, open way and make it just interesting. And then it, it, you know, the fact that not only did I grow up in a refugee camp, did my mother start in as a refugee, but that I ended up very successful in America and that we're having ongoing debates about refugee status in America. So the package just kept evolving, and it had to be written.
0: Right, right. So some of the refugee crisis that we have right now going on, we've got the um, the Syrians, obviously. We have the Rohingya. I want to make sure I say that right. We've got Africans crossing the Mediterranean to get into Europe. And of course, closer to home, we have Mexicans and Latin Americans, other Latin Americans who are crossing our own southern border. And so that is part of where my question was coming from. It just seems so timely, because you know, what the book did for me, a lot of what it did, um, with regards to the refugee issue is it humanized it, right? Because I think for not all of us have been refugees, right? And so it's very easy to sort of see these stories in the newspapers, or if we're not coming into contact, we're not working for an NGO, we're not seeing it. It it can be kind of abstract. And so I think that one of the reasons that your story is so important is because it does humanize it. And because, um, you know, kind of like what you just said, uh, you know, sitting across from you now as an extremely accomplished woman who has led a very full, very American life, it's hard to imagine you began life as a refugee, right? And yet you did. And you spent quite a bit of time in the book um, talking about what it was like growing up in the refugee camp. And I was going to talk about this later, but since we've kind of naturally gone there, let's, let's start with this instead. This was going to be, like I said, much later. But can you tell us a little bit about what it was like living in the refugee camp before you came to the States. And I don't know if you remember, do you remember having to leave home to go to the camp? Because no, how old were you? You of were very not. young. I was six months old. Six months old. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: okay. I, as I say, I feel as if I remember it because my mother talked about it so much. Right, right. But I certainly remember leaving the refugee camp. Yeah. And, and I remember life there. And, yeah, tell us about that. Well, because... there's, I could do it in two different ways. And the one that people expect is things like the fact that my first set of teeth were brown stubs. You expect that. Right. The fact that I now have the bones, I had the bones of a 70-year-old when my mother still had the bones of a 50-year-old. Really? Yeah. Really? So I could talk about all those kinds of things, but that had nothing to do with my concept of the refugee camp. So tell us about your concept. It turns out I loved it. Yeah. I adored it. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. First of all, imagine being a kid surrounded by people who can't work. They don't have time for anything but paying attention to the little to you. kids around.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. And
1: I also just developed some relationships with um, some older people. So I had an adopted grandfather, Dejagenia, an adopted grandmother, Vava. You, you know, who my mother was horrified by, but who I loved. <laughs> uh-huh. And so to me, the campo was fabulous, mm-hmm. just fabulous. And I hated leaving mm-hmm. because I had to leave some of those people behind.
0: Yeah. Although there is a story. You just mentioned your favorite character there. You, did you call him your grandpa? Dad you Eugenia. Yeah. So you had to leave him behind, and that was pretty traumatic. But I don't know if we want to give any spoilers here, but there was kind of a happy ending to that story. <laughs> Do you want to tell that story, or should we save that for the readers? Because that's a great story.
1: Yeah. No, well, I, I, my dad Eugenia did come to America. Uh huh. And we were very fortunate. We got to San Francisco at a time when houses were being thrown away, given away, and we ended up buying an apartment building, and Dajazanya moved in with us, and so did everybody else who came from the refugee camp periodically. So we had a house full with my aunt and uncle and our family. My grandmother showed up and uh, so we were all
0: reunited. So I saw you speak yesterday at Book Passage at uh, one of your book events. I was very lucky to be not far from there, so I was able to attend. And you said something else about being in the camp. So first, the surprising thing was, first of all, that you liked it, right. which you just got done talking about. And and I think that that's really interesting perspective and heartening perspective, because like you said, yeah, there, there are, there, are, there are of course, negative things, healthcare, that sort of thing, your teeth, your bones. But you were able to be happy because you were so young and you were a child. And so that's, that's heartening, heartwarming. But the other thing you said that was funny was that the adults were having parties in the camp. So <laughs> can you tell right. us a little bit more about that? That's yeah. right.
1: It's funny. And this actually is a recent thought um, that has, gal- I've been, it's been galvanized by the fact that my cousin is right now for the first time visiting San Saba, mm. the refugee camp where we lived for four years. She was born in America after that. But her mother, Galia, and her her father was Shura, my father's older brother. Galia was one of the most amazing women I've ever known, and I was fortunate that she was my aunt. But she was this spirited character, Um, and uh, she was just, she celebrated life from start to finish. And she too was a three time refugee um, who ended up in America. And when I was heading over to the camps, Uh, to visit with my brother when we were doing research for this book just a few years ago. Galia was actually dying. And uh, so she was very near the end of her life. And she was having trouble breathing. And I went to visit her because I wanted to hear the stories one more time. And here's this woman who was within three months of death. And she started talking about the camps. And pretty soon she was talking about this big room that they all slept in, which they divided by sort of sheets and blankets so they would have a little bit of privacy. But when they wanted to party, they would put away the the sheets and blankets and they would pull out the tables. And her story was all about how she was dancing on the table and my uncle, her husband, got angry at her, Uh as he always Uh did, Uh because she was over the top. (laughs) And when my cousin was just there last week, this camp, um, it's kind of a complicated story, but it was actually an old rice factory in Trieste that during World War II was a concentration camp. Mm -hmm. And then after the war was a refugee camp. And the Italians have acknowledged it not until the late 70s and turned it into a memorial. So you can now go and see it. And my cousin found this big open space with the beams and the bricks still showing And she took a picture of it. And then she sent me a picture of my aunt and uncle and my mother and father and a whole mob having a party there at the refugee camp. Yeah. And you just don't expect to find that.
0: Well, the question that's in my head the whole time you're telling this story, and I don't know if you'll have the answer because you were so young, but where did those people find that? Where did they find the spirit? How did they keep their spirits up? To, to, to a point where they wanted to party because they don't know what's happening. And maybe this is the reason, actually. Maybe I'm about to re- answer the question because they don't know what's happening next. They don't know how many years they're going to be trapped here. They're stateless. They don't know if the United States or other countries are going to take them in. So it seems that it would be so difficult to maintain your spirits, never mind maintain them to a point where you're actually ready to party. But right. again, maybe that's kind of how they survive. I don't know. Any, any thoughts on that? Or did your aunt ever give you any insight? Well, I've insight? still thought about
1: it a lot. And to be perfectly honest, My father was never the same person again after the camp. After the camp. There's no question that it tears something out of your soul. Right. But the thing that I learned, and it was the night that I went in to talk to my aunt shortly before her death. And when she started telling that story, it just hit me so hard that, you know, whoever you are, that spirit comes with you wherever you go. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. believe she could actually turn that whole room happy. Well, so, not, right. I think that just really helped.
0: Sure. Yeah, and what we're talking about wasn't necessarily everyone's experience. No, and, and it wasn't every day. And that's exactly <laughs> it. We're not suggesting that, that it was a party every day in the in the refugee camp. Right. But um, still just fascinating and such a tribute to the human spirit and, and that particular individual. Right. Individuals like well, her. and
1: then like my father, we were living in these barracks. That was where our family was because children weren't allowed in the big building. And what did my father do? Here's this barrack and there's dirt and nothing all around it and they're just lined up you know in hundreds of these barracks he builds a gazebo uh-huh. and find some seeds in the nearby countryside. And pretty soon we have climbing green flowers over the gazebo, and that's where everybody hangs out. Really? At the entry to our particular barrack. Wow. And I'd forgotten about that, but I actually have a photograph of A photograph of, of that, and that I too. I remember that well. Really? Yeah. So you just, spirit God, will do incredible things.
0: Yeah, seriously. So... Um, there was another story, or there is another story before we move on from the refugee camp, because we could talk about that for the whole hour, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, but there's another story about that refugee camp. Someone else who is now a celebrity was also there. So, can you tell us that story? Not when you were there, but can right. you tell us who else you just discovered was in the same camp that right. you were in?
1: I'll, I'll go back a little bit on the story. Yep. So, I mentioned that Mussolini kicked my mother out of a place called Istria, my mother's family. That was because Italy was given that corner. Of the world, as sort of a prize for joining World War One on Britain's side, um, they actually expected all of Croatia. They didn't get it. They got this one tiny triangle—a nice
0: triangle, a nice triangle, a nice triangle very nice triangle—for those of you who have not Venice. been. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Beautiful beaches, but at the time, it was my mother's home for 400 years. Right. And it turns out that it was a triangle of land that went back and forth many times. It was part of the Venetian Empire. It was Illyria. It was part of Austro-Hungary. It transferred a lot. My mother's family was kicked out in 1922. Italy owned it until World War II. They joined World War II on the wrong side. And Mm -hmm. when the Germans and, and the fascists and Nazis lost the war, they ended up losing Istria. Turns out that was two days after my brother was born wow. in 1947. And of course, I could say all kinds of horrible things about what Mussolini did to my family. Yugoslavia did the same thing to the Italians. It was cruel. Mm-hmm. And they started persecuting them. And I've recently discovered that there are a number of families in North Beach.
0: Who Here were, in San Francisco.
1: Yes. And in fact, there's a Telegraph Hill newspaper called The Semaphore. Oh really? which just published a huge story about it, my story and their story. And just a few days ago, I was listening to Terry Gross, yeah. who was interviewing Lydia Bastianich, mm-hmm. who is a well-known chef in America, restaurateur, and she has recently written a book. And she announced in that that she grew up, lived for two years in San Saba, the same refugee camp, A few years after we did, Uh but it was because they were eventually forced out of Istria.
0: You'll need to ask her if she remembers your father's gazebo.
1: That's right.
0: (laughs) Okay, but have you actually tried to contact her?
1: I, I've sent a few notes to her PR agent, and we haven't heard anything back.
0: Okay. All right. Well, uh, hopefully she's listening to my podcast, This Radio Show. I'm sure and it's a very high probability. I know. I know it is. Hey, the word's getting out. Yep. And I love I, it. Yes, thank you. And uh, we will, of course, be publicizing this as much as possible. So, uh, wait, remind me her name? Lydia?
1: Lydia Bastianich.
0: Bastianich. So she's not Italian, then? She was... Well or it's it's hard to say what whole everybody back and forth, there right, is. Right. Yeah, yes. She's Istrian. Yeah, she's Istrian. Her primary language it. was it was Italian was but Bastianich
1: yeah. is clearly a Istrian name. Right. A Slavic name.
0: Right. But then there was the whole, you talk about this in the book, and it's a little bit of a tangent, but the whole, when the Italians were there, then the Istrians had to take Italian names, exactly. and it probably went back and forth. Exactly. And this whole... Exactly. And yep. you know,
1: Cafe Trieste in San Francisco? Yes. Their family went through the same thing. Oh, did they really? Yes, they left Istria near Pula. Yeah. There's a number. Mario's Coffee Shop, the yeah. restaurant, Albona.
0: Huh, interesting. So, yeah. I didn't know that. So they were actually from Istria. Yeah. The, the, uh, okay. North I used to,
1: Beach is full of...
0: Yeah, when I first moved to San Francisco, that was my cafe. That's yeah. where I went all the time. And allegedly, that's where um wrote The Godfather. Uh, who's the name? Yes. Who has the building right there? Yes. Yes. Uh, I've actually seen him there. My fa- mind's blank, too. Wait. No, no, no. We know his name. I know. Who wrote The Godfather? Uh, oh, Produced my God. We're, we're completely blanking. Okay. Anyway, apparently, this is going to kill me. All right. We have a show to do. Uh, you know, there are a hundred people out there right now shouting his name and I can see his <laughs> it's building true. and it's he's Nicholas cages. I know I have a photograph of him and... sitting in
1: front of it on my iPhone.
0: God. <laughs> oh my God. This is annoying. All right. So I have a couple, a, a couple, again, these are things I was going to leave to the end, but because we're already here, I just, I, I'm just curious. You came to the United States by boat. From Genoa. Yes. I think, right? On the U.S.
1: Constitution. On the U.S.
0: Constitution. Do you remember that trip?
1: Oh, yes. Unfortunately. Okay.
0: Yeah. So that was a bad trip. I was seasick the whole time. Yeah, we were time. seasick the whole time.
1: Okay. And then we were supposed to come into America and see the Statue of Liberty. And of course, it was January 2nd. So you couldn't see it? We couldn't see oh, it.
0: Oh, no. Oh no! Because that was my next question: Is what do you remember about arriving in arriving in New York? That's pretty anticlimactic.
1: It was horrible, actually. Yeah. I'm not sure I should say how I felt about New York because I do now love
0: it. Okay, all right. All that matters is that you now love it. Um, okay. But I
1: will. No, I will share a story. Okay. Yeah. So we came into New York and we hated it. We yeah. We took a taxi to a friend's apartment. It was a tenement. And uh, so there was a scene there where we were allowed to choose where we lived. Yeah. And my brother and I picked San Francisco. Yeah, which
0: city you were actually allowed exactly, to live in. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So to get to San Francisco, we had to get on a Greyhound bus. And in the middle of winter...
0: Oh, you had to take a bus all across the country? Yeah, yeah you did. four days yeah, yeah. and four nights. Oh, my God.
1: Anyway, so we get into this bus, and all of a sudden, as it's getting to be evening, my father says, oh, Everyone, look, this is so amazing. There's snow. And of course, we had never seen snow. And we slowly approached Philadelphia, and there was this beautiful church steeple with snow falling on it. And I finally said, oh, America is beautiful.
0: Oh, yeah. To see snow for the first time. That's got to be be beautiful. Yeah, and and a church steeple on top of it. yeah. Yeah, so... Okay. So um, a couple of things I want to talk about. So what were some of the challenges of writing this book? So like I, like we've talked about already, it's your mom's story as much as yours and your grandmother's story as much of yours. Um, was your mom at all involved in writing? I mean, she had passed on beforehand. Um, you hadn't started writing... Yeah. Was she at all involved? Tell me.
1: Well, my mom told me all the stories. Right. So in a sense she was involved, but no, she didn't know I was writing this book. Um, and in fact, even my aunt was already gone by the time I wrote the book.
0: Okay. Um,
1: so I, I I spent a lifetime gathering these stories. Right. Um, right. But I wrote the book after the after they were gone.
0: Yeah. One thing you said about the book yesterday, and I've heard you say this before, is that the book is creative nonfiction. So what does that mean to you, and why did you opt for that approach to tell these stories? Because I, I, I liked what you said about that yesterday in book at uh, Book Passage. Well,
1: I was trying to write this book, and I was really struggling. Anybody who's ever tried to write a book knows that you just keep getting stuck. And I was in this one workshop where a guy was making us write six hours a day.
0: Six hours a day? Yeah, he was amazing. Anyway.
1: Wow. And so I just sat there. It was called deep writing. I, mean, it was, I guess. Yeah, quite deep. Yeah. <laughs> and he said something brilliant, which was he said, said, look, if you're stuck, if you're writing history or you're writing memoir, think about changing the genre. Think about writing a novel or a fiction. And the minute he said that, something clicked in my brain. And instead of worrying about what was going on, I started writing about a conversation between my grandmother and my grandfather. Well, my grandmother had died long before I was born, and my grandfather I'd seen
0: once. So you were channeling. So I was channeling. And (laughs) Uh
1: And it worked so well. And so... Everything I say in the book is true either as a memory, as a story my mother told, or as research I did. But I call it creative nonfiction because it it reads like a novel.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and you just use these conversations as vehicles for for, for telling these facts.
1: Exactly, for telling the
0: stories. And making it a a, a nice, easy read that way. And like you said, it does. It reads more like a novel.
1: And quite frankly, if I had written it as a complete nonfiction book, I think I would still have to say it was creative nonfiction because it's about the Balkans. And one thing about the Balkans is that nobody ever agrees about anything to do with the history of those countries.
0: Yesterday you said, quote, I don't, and I don't know. I I need to apologize to you actually, also because yesterday I should have told you before you started your reading that I was, of course, going to take notes if you said anything that I wanted to use today, and I was doing it on my phone. And I thought, oh my god, she's going to think I'm texting or you know surfing the web or something. And what I was doing yesterday was taking notes. And one of the notes I took was you said the following quote quote There are no facts in the Balkans. So I thought that that was really interesting. Can you what What did you mean by that?
1: Well, the Balkans were just a countries that kept shifting and breaking apart. And, you know, I described, for example, the fact that when Yugoslavia was created, it was Serbia, Croatia, and Slovenia. They got together of their own free will. It was a way to save themselves, especially for the Croatians, who were at high risk of being taken over by Italy, since yep. Britain had promised them that. Yep. And they had owned it as part of the Venetian Empire. Um and yet today, if you were to talk to somebody in Croatia who didn't live through that time, they probably would deny they ever wanted to be part of Yugoslavia. Yep. And so it just keeps changing. Today, I would say probably Serbia is close to being the pariah of those countries. And if you went back 40 years, it was the Croatians who were basically terrorists. Mm-hmm. So it it's all a question of time and perspective. And who you and ask. It just keeps, exactly. Right. And it just keeps changing, just like with Istria. Yep. You know, I always thought of Istria as something the Italians had taken over. I hadn't concentrated on the fact that the Italians were then kicked out in right. the same ungracious manner. No, because in your that family, had, that wasn't the small... point. Exactly. In
0: your family, that is not the story that you were going to be told.
1: Exactly. So my story is true. Their story is true. Right. And...
0: So how the hell then <laughs> did you do what you did, which was... Well, actually, I'm, I'm going to take that back. How did you, I'm still going to say, how the hell then, did you represent the history in, in 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 the book the way that you did? How do you tell that history given what we've just gotten done talking about, which is the fact that depends on who you ask, their perspective, the history is going to be told in a completely different way. And yet you can't tell your family's story without Talking about the history. They're inextricably linked. Right. And so, how did you do that? And first of all, and, or, or and not first of all, tenth of all, I guess, at this point, let me say that. One of the big impressions, one of the things that really resonated for me in this book is that you managed to tell somehow, I don't know how you did it, and that's what you're about to tell us. You managed to tell this very complicated history in a way that not only made sense, but didn't come across as just a boring history lesson. So, how did you do that? That's question, the first part of the question. The second part of the question then is going to be and, you know, did you have to be sensitive? to how people, knowing that it's such a sensitive tub topic, knowing that it's so subjective, how worried were you about how you represented that history and pissing people off?
1: Right. Well, actually, I'm still worried about it. I think I mentioned to you, I'm having the book translated into Serbian. Yeah. I have 150 cousins, relatives, <laughs> in Serbian Croatia. Three of my mother's sisters stayed in Serbia, three stayed in Croatia, I'm sure they don't agree 100% on the entire history. But what I have tried to do was be as balanced as possible. In the end, though, what you realize is you're as balanced as possible, but it's still the story through your eyes. Mm -hmm. It's still your perspective. Um, I I tell this story. I always thought that I grew up in America in a very open-minded way, and I was open to all kinds of cultures and I grew up in an inner-city school. By the time I finished fifth grade, I was the only white kid in my class. It didn't make any difference to me. Yeah. I felt like, you know... I it was, was your experience. Just, yeah, I was yeah. part of the this, this school team. Yet, when I was in my early 20s, I took a trip to Europe. I ended up on a cruise ship in the Greek islands. This is going to sound like it's way off topic.
0: Could we stay on topic? Could (laughs) we please stay? God, she always does this. She just goes off on these tangents. Okay, so you're on a cruise.
1: We got off. In Greece. On the coast of Turkey in Kusadasi.
0: Kusadasi, which means bird Mm -hmm. island. Wow. Little fact. Yep. My goodness. And (laughs) we
1: got off, and the first thing that happened was I met this wonderful young Turk, a young Turkish man. And he and I hit it off, and we just had a wonderful time. I still have a token that he gave me. Oh, nice. But here's my first thought when I saw that young man. Oh, my God, Turks are human?
0: Right. I was shocked. Right. I had no idea
1: I had that bias. Yeah. But I grew up, the Turks were, in Russia, it was the Tartars, who had Mm -hmm. invaded for 400 years. Mm -hmm. In Yugoslavia, you know, Serbia, Montenegro, the Turks had been invading forever. That's why my family fled 400 years ago. I had no idea. From Your biases yeah. are so deeply built in yeah. that you don't even know
0: they're there. Well, and the thing is, you weren't meeting a lot of Turks or Ottomans, no. of course, because they way back then, they were Ottomans, a lot of, I mean, depending on the time period. And it's not like there were Ottomans running around San Francisco or Turks, that many Turks. Actually, now we have a lot of Turks. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but you had never had occasion. Right. To have, to have an exchange that I was to biased. know. To, yeah, and so you didn't know right. until you So, you're so it really so. helps
1: me understand that. Yeah, this is from my point of view. You asked me about questions people ask at readings. Yeah. I was in a reading in, yeah again, Denver. And this man raised his hand and said, My grandfather was a Jew in Zagreb. His family had been there for many generations and they had to flee during the war because um, Zagreb, Croatia, ended up on the side of the Nazis during the war on the German side. And all of a sudden, I realized I had never known anything about the Jewish population. I had not mentioned them in my book. And here was this man saying, oh, my God, here's a new story. Of course, I can't wait to hear the rest of it. We're going to stay in touch. yeah. But it's so amazing. There's so much more complexity to every story than you yeah. can possibly cover.
0: Yeah. That was one thing. This is a quick tangent. One thing that was fascinating to me when I was in the Balkans, I don't know, two or three years ago, um, was when I went to Skopje, Macedonia, when I went to Sarajevo, when I went to some of those other places, and and I would show up. And, for example, in, in Skopje, Macedonia, a third of the town, of the downtown, it's like the Ottoman Empire, Right. It, it looks like it's it's like part of Istanbul. It's like little Istanbul. Right. And same with um, there's the canvas Sarai and there's things in, in the uh, the uh, the cemeteries, the Ottoman cemeteries with the turbans on right. top. I was walking around Sarajevo, not expecting that, just because I, d- I just didn't know that much. Of course, I knew the Ottomans had been there, but I didn't expect in 2016, 15, whatever it was, to still see so much of that influence all this time later.
1: Right. Well, and, and the art is influenced, you know, in all the architecture. right. It's right. everywhere. It's fascinating And the food, my, I grew up on food. I might as well have been in Turkey. Yeah. You know, it's phenomenal food, but yes. it, it, uh, it very influenced by the Turkish empire. Yeah. Yeah, it's the just, Ottoman it's Empire. It's so interesting, yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, so one thing uh, that I really, really want to talk about, and this is what I was going to start with, but we're going with the flow here, but I want to circle back to this because it is so important. And we started to touch on this a little bit in the beginning, but the importance of language. And there are so many different angles here and so many different angles in your book related to to language. And I'm fascinated with language, so selfishly, part of it's just because I'm so interested. But but it really is central to the book in many different ways. So the title, we already talked about why the title. Um, I think I'm going to skip what I was going to ask. I was going to ask some sort of high-level questions about the important language, importance of language. But I think I want to just go to... Because there, there's so much... Language is political, right? Particularly in the Balkans, um, because it's so tied to our identities. Right. There's so many other places in the world today, for example, Catalonia and Spain, you know, they have their own language that's so key to their national identity and their justification for wanting to break away from the rest of Spain. So language matters. And we don't necessarily always see that so much in the States, although, of course, we do today much more than we used to. But but, but anyway, so, so there's the political aspect to language that's really important and that comes up again and again in your book. But there's also, of course, the personal aspect. And that's what I think I'm just going to skip to, um, given the amount of time that we have left. So in your story, the, the personal side of language and personal importance of language starts with your grandmother and mother. I'm going to read a quote. Zora, so quote, Zora, your mom, had promised her mother, Katarina, your grandmother, on her deathbed that she would raise her children speaking their language. And it had seemed easy then she knew how important it was to her mother. Katerina felt they had given up everything back in Medellin, Medellin to protect themselves from the Italians who were trying to kill the Slavic language and culture. To her, it was like trying to kill her soul. She never learned another language and couldn't imagine what that would be like. Thinking and talking and breathing all happened in Croatian for her. It was her mother tongue. And then there, of course, we have the, the title of the book. Can you give us a little context for that quote and what was happening both politically and in the family at the time? Because, again, I think this is this is so much about what the book is about. These these issues that we're talking about here in that that passage.
1: Well, they had uh, moved to Istria uh, almost 400 years earlier, and they had, in fact, moved there because the Turks, the Ottomans were invading Montenegro, which is where the family was originally from. And so there they were, speaking that language. In fact, they were brought up there because they were shipbuilders, Mm -hmm. and they helped the Venetian Empire rebuild after the um, plagues, basically, Mm -hmm. had destroyed the population of that part of Europe. They stayed there through the Austrian Empire, which allowed them to keep their language. And all of a sudden, Mussolini came in, hated Slavs, and besides, he was on a rampage to take over Italy, And he wanted to prove he was powerful. And he did it by moving Italians in and moving Slavs out. And so that was the language that they wanted to protect. And and my grandfather and my grandmother just did not want to give that up. So they ended up moving to Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And they lived in different parts of Yugoslavia. But they were able to stay where their language was protected.
0: Okay. And then the sort of next step with regards to the impersonal importance of language if you will comes up again much later when zora your mother decides to go to america and this is another quote from the book you know quote you know when i promised her my children would speak her language so your mom is talking about having promised your grandmother that she would teach her children their language Uh, you know, when I promised her my children would speak her language, I never envisioned this happening. She didn't envision going to the States. But I'm determined that they still will, said Zora. But Draga, they will have to speak English if you go to America. So the they in that quote, of course, again, was you. You were one of those children to whom Zora was referring. So how did that play out? You came to America where everyone spoke English, or, you know, most people right. spoke English. I mean, you were in San Francisco, so it's a little more cosmopolitan, obviously. But in general, English was the day-to-day language. Uh, but your mother was determined to keep her promise to your grandmother that you would speak their language.
1: Right. I'm actually going to start a little earlier. Okay, do I'm going to go back to the refugee camp. All right, do because it. Because I was less than a year old. And we were in a refugee camp with Russians mm-hmm. because we were kicked out of Yugoslavia because we were Russian. And there was my mother, the only one speaking Serbian. So again, your dad was Russian. My dad was Russian, Russian. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And everybody else in the camp, they were all Russian. And I did not talk at all until after I was two years old. And everybody in the camp was convinced it was because of my mother and her stubborn refusal to speak Russian with me.
0: Interesting.
1: And so I started talking after I was two years old, apparently in full sentences in two languages,
0: Russian and Serbian,
1: Russian and Serbian. So my mother was basically justified in her belief that we would be okay.
0: Yeah. You just needed a little time to let it brew or whatever. Yeah,
1: exactly. And then we went to America and my parents continued their belief in their language. And so our entire lives, my father always spoke Russian. My mother always spoke Serbian. They would speak to each other in two languages. Mm-hmm. And we would shift.
0: Because they both understood. Well, this, because course, they're, they're close enough. Of course, they
1: were completely fluent. No, my mother learned Russian. She learned Russian. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We have yeah. friends who've been with us for years who are Russian who, are Russian who still don't understand Serbian. Oh, really? Yeah. We, well, people have enough. to
0: have the ear and make the effort. And exactly. they're different enough on top of it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And okay. plus, we're in America, remember? Yeah. We're in America, <laughs> by the way. So learning two more languages. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But when we came to America, we went to school, and within a few weeks, we were speaking English. Yeah. And if you come before you're ten, you don't even have an accent. So yeah. 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 English is my third language, but
0: I know I'm so jealous of people, uh, you know, because I speak Spanish, French, and a fair amount of Turkish, and I'm just so jealous of people who got to learn when they're young enough because right. of course I have an ax- I have accents in all those languages and I make lots of mistakes in all those languages even though I'm fluent in Spanish and French so I'm always jealous of people who got that <laughs> early start yeah. it's just not fair yeah. in Ohio I didn't get that chance to right. learn French fluently right by um, the way
1: you know when I speak French yeah I have an accent
0: really Russian. in Russian Okay, and well, they
1: love Russian accents. Oh, they really? Hate American accents. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So I well, got very
0: lucky. Well, when I first learned French, I started learning it in Spain, and so I went to France, and I apparently had a, a slight Spanish accent at the time. That has since gone away. Now people, when I'm in, when I'm traveling, people will say you're not French, but you're some you're from some Francophone country. Oh, that's lovely. Which I take that as exactly. a compliment. That's yeah, they'll be huge a, a, compliment because they know I'm not French. <laughs> but I can convince them they think I'm Francophone of some sort. So I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> but, but we've got five minutes. And so I want to talk more about you and less about my own language experiences. Um, but I want to know what it was like, because, again, language is so tied to identity, and particularly in your case. And so it's almost as if you're English during the day, you're American English. I mean, lang- linguistically, you're English. You're speaking American English during the day. But then you're going to this Russian school, was that every after day? After
1: school, it was three days a week. After three school. days a and week on Saturdays,
0: and you're speaking Russian with your father, and you're and very Scouts. integrated in a in, in Russian Scouts and Russian community, and Russian that's friends, yeah, Russian friends. So you're speaking this other language nonstop. I mean, that's that's fully integrated right. in your day to day experience. Right. And then you also have Serbian, right? So is is it even worth asking or did it just not matter because you didn't think about it? Cause that was just your experience or was there sort of a three different Tanya thing going on? I mean, that seems like there's a lot.
1: Oh uh, yeah. I never thought you of it. You just never thought of it because it's just, all. yeah. Yeah. Now I was mortified about the fact that everybody at home was foreign I hated the accents.
0: So that's where it came in. that was
1: embarrassing. So I was always embarrassed to bring friends home. In fact, one of my first friends that I brought home was a young Chinese girl. Uh Because... I understood when I went to her house that she was mortified so was about safe. the Chinese at her house, oh, yeah. and so all of a sudden I realized, well, wait a minute, I'm not the only one.
0: Yeah, and there is a very funny story in the book that you already mentioned at the beginning of our chat, where uh, your mom does make some 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 mistakes in English yes. relative to a guy that you brought home. Yes. So that's a funny story, and we're not going to tell that story, but that's 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 a good one worth reading. Uh, but the story I want to tell in in our last three minutes. Um, unfortunately, because I have, of course, many, many more questions for you. But the last story that I would like you to tell, if you don't mind, is, so you have this uh, relationship with Serbian where you're only speaking it with one person, which is really unique and curious. You're only speaking it with your mother. Well, one day, some Serbian friends come over. They're traveling. It's a, um, I think they were in a ballet company or a dance troupe of some sort. And something very curious happened. So can you tell that story? Because I love that story.
1: Sure, sure. We invited them over to our house for dinner. It was when Yugoslavia was just starting to open up. And this group of young dancers, men and women, came. And we were having dinner at our house. My mother was a great cook. And she was serving up stuff. And there was rakia flowing. And one of the young men turned to me and started asking me a question in Serbian. And my mother had just stepped out of the room, and so finally the attention was on me. And he asked me a question, and I couldn't answer. And I just stared at him. There was just silence. And he asked me another question. And then this young woman, he was very handsome, and this young woman sitting next to him said, Oh, leave her alone. She's grown up in America. She probably doesn't speak our language. Right. At which point my father said, Well, this is ridiculous. Of course she speaks our language. Tanya, what's going on? And again, I tried to say something and nothing happened, and I felt like such an idiot. I could not come up with one word. And suddenly, my mother stepped in from the kitchen, she opened the door, she looked around, she said, Tanya, what's happening? Because everybody was staring at me, and I answered her (coughs) comfortably.
0: Without thinking about it. Without
1: thinking about it, and the minute I looked at my mother, I could speak her language, yeah. but I could not speak it with anyone else at that point that in time. That is so fascinating. Yeah.
0: I would just love to get a psychologist in here and find out like what was going on. Exactly. Because you said that eventually that was yes. no longer an issue. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. I went to Yugoslavia and I met a lot of people and right. I could speak it. Right. So I'm now comfortable with other people, All but right. I was shocked. All
0: right. So if you're Serbian and you see Tanya on the street, you will be able to have a conversation with her in her one of her mother tongues. Ponashemo. Yeah, there you go. Okay, we are out of time, Tanya.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for being here. And there are a few things I want to say, though, before I let you go. First of all, you've got more stories. People, in addition to buying uh, Mother Tongue, you can get, I think there's one or two Travels with Tanya that are free ebooks on Amazon. Is right. there just one up right now or there's two? There's just one right now. One They're right now. More soon. Uh, and then you're working on a second book, I, I am. think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So we will have you on to talk about that. But I also want to say really quickly, upcoming events. Wednesday, May 23rd, this Wednesday at the Healdsburg Public Library. She will be doing a reading of Mother Tongue. Saturday, June 2nd at the North Beach Public Library. She will be doing the same. And Monday, June 11th at the Book Passage in the San Francisco Ferry Building. And of course, to uh, check out Mother Tongue and her bio and her events and everything else that Tanya's got going on, you can te- check out Tanya Romanov. That's R O M A N O V dot com. Tanya Romanov.com. Tanya, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks to you for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please help me spread the word. On my show page, you'll see many ways to share on social media. If you see a post on Facebook for an upcoming show that sounds good, please share that. It all really helps, and I really appreciate it. For more about me, my website is matthewfelix.com, and links to my social media books, audiobooks, other podcasts, and all the rest can be found there. Last but not least, if you have any comments, show ideas, or just want to say hello, you can email me at felixonair at matthewfelix.com. Thanks again for tuning in and until next time, have a great week.